What an amazing song to just celebrate what Christ has done this morning. I honestly could not have picked a better song to uh, sing as we open up God's Word this morning. Um, You can begin to turn your copy of God's Word to Paul's letter to Titus. There's a lot to think about. It's a new year. With the new year for many, it's a great opportunity for reflection. And for us as a church, um, our pastor, Pastor Ryan King, is out on sabbatical here. So we're praying for him that he enjoys a month of restoration, refreshment, and just being filled and refreshed by the Spirit. Um, So this morning, we reflect over the new year. It's a great opportunity for reflection. Many see the new year as an opportunity for a fresh start way to try new things, to better oneself, cut out bad habits, what have you, right? The new year is a great opportunity to to look at each of these things in our lives. We see this played out often in this idea of a new year's resolution, right? Many of you maybe have made a resolution for this new year. Um, You know, maybe it's to exercise more. That's one of the most common ones. Lose weight, be healthier, start a hobby that you've always wanted to. You save more money, make wiser financial decisions, read more books, what, whatever, what have you. For others, it could be much deeper than that. This might be the year that you've chosen to resolve to come out of addiction, whether it be to alcohol or drugs or pornography. There, it might be deeper for some of us. But these are all good things. We, the New Year is a great opportunity to resolve to make changes in our lives. And you see this idea of a New Year's resolution. It reflects in us something, doesn't it? It reflects in us the idea of we know we need to stop doing bad, stop doing the things that are harmful, and start doing things that are good, that are helpful, that are healthy for us. Some get really optimistic. I commonly hear this this phrase, new year, new me, right? Somehow magically, right, now that the calendar has a different number, I'm I'm now this completely changed person. You know, it's sort of this over-optimism, right, towards towards the new year. Because we see, honestly, with these New Year's resolutions that we don't always keep them, do we? If we're being brutally honest, it's honestly rare that we keep our New Year's resolution. There's a a, a 2016 study that shows the success rate for those who make New Year's resolution is only between about 9 and 16%. We don't keep our New Year's resolutions, do we? Maybe we get excited about it. It's a new year, new me. I'm going to make some changes, right? You do really well for a couple weeks. You set out to conquer whatever it is you want to conquer. But then February rolls around, and without even realizing it, you've already broken it. You've already broken the New Year's resolution. We have an issue with that, don't we? We have to ask ourselves why. Why can't we do the things that we say we want to do? Why do we do the things that we don't want to do, as Paul says? Well... 
There's, according to a very recent article from the Economic Times, a majority of people who fail to keep their New Year's resolutions, the reason they fail is because they don't have a strong enough motivation. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Or the why is not strong enough to get them to actually do it. Friends, remember this morning that what we believe determines how we will behave. Belief causes behavior. So now, I want us to reflect together as individuals, as a church, and we think about why we do what we do as followers of Jesus, as the body of Christ. What is our motivation? What motivates us to be the church? What motivates us to live our lives for Christ? We have to ask this this morning, and I think, what better time than the new year to reflect on our motivations? Well, Paul wrote to Titus to remind believers of where they can find their motivation. So this morning, let's look to scripture so that we can found our motivations in the right places. If you'll turn to Titus chapter 3, and we'll begin here in verse 1. Verse 1, it says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word for us. Help us to found our motivations and where you would have us find them. Help us to live our lives for you and to be changed by your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, to offer you some context to what we just read, Paul... The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus. Titus was a disciple of Paul and was a missionary 
in, on the island of Crete, which is an island near Greece. Paul likely wrote this letter in the last years of his life. And in Titus 1.5, earlier in the letter, we see that Paul most likely traveled to Crete with Titus on perhaps a, a fourth or maybe even a fifth or a sixth missionary journey. And he left Titus in Crete as they were there founding churches. He left him in Crete to continue the work that was being done. Titus's role, if you look at the beginning of the letter, Paul instructs Titus to do the work of appointing elders in the churches and to dispute false teachings, to make sure that the teachings were correct. So he was raising up leaders and he was solidifying the teaching. So we know throughout the letter of Titus, Paul is disputing false teachers. And we don't know the content of these false teachers, but we do know that they were members of the circumcision party, which is what Titus 1.10 says, and their false teaching seemed to allow for ungodliness because Paul is constantly, throughout this letter, rebuking ungodliness in the Cretan churches. So we see that there were these sort of weird false teachings that it was a mixture of, of these sort of Jewish elements. People, they were a part of the circumcision party. They wanted to, uh, to submit to the law. It says in this text they were having quarrels about the law. There were false teachers that were kind of mixing Jewish elements with cultural practices of the day in Crete that were ungodly. You can imagine the practices of ancient Greece that, that's sort of the picture of what we're looking at. So it's, it's here in, in this picture that we see Paul's instructing Titus in the midst of this false teaching to remind the churches of what matters. He's reminding them of what they need to do and where they need to find their motivation. The first two words of this text are remind them. That is significant. Why does it say that? Well, probably because they needed reminding. They needed to be reminded, or else Paul would not have told Titus to remind them, right? Don't we need reminding too? That's significant. We need to be reminded of the right things. Why do we need reminding? Because if we don't remember, inevitably we will forget. Inevitably we will forget the things that need to be centered in our lives. We also see in these two words, the original Greek is in the present tense. So this was not a one-off. Titus, if you could just remind them once about this, about these things. It was a constant reminder of these things. The, a good translation perhaps would be go on reminding them. Continue, constantly remind them of these things. Because they needed to be reminded of them. We need to be reminded of them. Not just once. Not just twice. But constantly. Why do you think we, we come to church? right? Why do you think we have community? Because we need to be reminded of the things that matter. So we need each other. So every time we come to church on Sunday, we're reminded. So this morning, let us be reminded. Let us listen to the word, because the word has a lot to tell us this morning. 
So what is Paul reminding them of? Well, he's, he's reminding them and reminding us of three things in this passage. The first is how we should live. Verses 1 and 2 say, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. You see, Paul is reminding us of the Christian life. He's reminding us of how we should live. What is the standard of living for those that follow Christ? He's painting a picture for us of that. So as he reminds them of what Christian living is, what is, first he reminds them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So let's unpack that. This would have been very significant to those living in Crete, specifically on the island of Crete. This is very significant. In Titus 1.12, Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This paints a picture of the type of people you're dealing with in Crete. And Paul's not saying this about them. A Cretan is saying this about them. Right? Sometimes you have to be a part of a people group to really know them, know them best. So we see here that Cretans were depraved people. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These were not the type to submit to rulers and authorities. Nor were their rulers and authorities the type that anyone would want to submit to. Right? So to submit to rulers and authorities, this was radical. This was a big change for people living in Crete. The Christian was to be this model citizen. The Christian was to be one who wouldn't stir division, who wouldn't uh, be disobedient to rulers and authorities, but to set an example as one being set apart by God, to be a productive citizen. We see this command to be submissive to rulers and authorities. It's not just here, but it's throughout Scripture. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as, as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Jesus even says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We have to be good citizens. We pay our taxes. We obey the law. Right? We're law-abiding. We obey the government as long as the government doesn't require us to disobey God. Right? Because then we obey God rather than man. But we still pay our taxes. We still abide by laws. Right? We submit to rulers and authorities. This is controversial for us. Right? That our culture does not like to submit to its rulers and authorities. There's great distrust for government, right? There's great distaste for government, and for very good reason, right? Like, you don't have to look far to see just the lunacy and just depravity of the people in our government. And many people in our culture just blatantly hate the government and don't want to submit to it. And as much as you know, I can understand that. We have to be different. We have to be different. Even if we disagree 
Even if we don't like it, it doesn't say agree with your rulers and authorities. It doesn't say uh, like your rulers and authorities. It says submit to them. We, we still need to submit to them. Paul also reminds us to be obedient. We have to live under the lordship and authority of God and his word. So we read the scriptures. We submit ourselves to the scriptures and we become obedient to them. Right? Practically, when I read scripture, I'll often, I'll often end my time in the word by asking myself, what specific practical steps can I take today or this week to be obedient to the word? The follower of Christ is obedience. And the Christian life is one of obedience. Next, Paul says to be ready for every good work. We're to be ready and available to do good things. We have to be ready for service. When a brother or a sister calls and is in crisis, they need your support. We're available for that. We have to be ready to step in and care for one another means that we're ready when God provides us with an opportunity to share the gospel. It means that we're ready when there's an opportunity to disciple someone. We're ready to serve the church when there's needs. We're ready and we're available. But not only should we be ready, but we should look for these opportunities. We should seek them out. This keeps our lives from becoming passive, right? If we, if we aren't ready for good works, if we're not available and we're not looking for good works, we're going to become passive. We're going to slip into apathy. We have to be ready. This month provides a great opportunity to be ready for good works. I don't know if you've noticed, but Pastor Ryan does a lot around here. <laughs> he... He serves people. I, I could probably, there, there's probably every, almost every one of you in this church could say like, yes, I've been benefited, I've benefited from Ryan's service in this way. Some of you maybe in little ways, but some of you in very deep ways. Ways that would have left you in very dangerous situations had he not served you. He does a lot around here. And he's taking a, a well-earned month of rest. This is a time to step up and be ready for good works. This Sunday evening, we're beginning uh, an evangelistic course that discovers the person of Jesus. This is a time to step up, to, to evangelize to people this evening, to, to work to support the church while our pastor isn't here. We have to be ready for good works. Paul also says to speak evil of no one. This is simple, right? We shouldn't gossip. We shouldn't slander, right? It seems simple, but it's one of the worst issues in our churches today. We, we have to cut this out. It's just not right for, for Christians. It's the old adage of if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? We control ourselves. We speak evil of no one. You know, I think that if we would be intentional to cut out gossip and slander, how much would we see God move if we would just simply cut out 
these wretched sins from our lives. Avoid quarreling. Christians shouldn't fight with one another. Christians should be able to disagree on the non-essential things without fighting and bickering and causing divisions. But we still see quarrels litter the church. Even the smallest of quarrels, if left unchecked, it can become massive issues. Guys, how do you think church splits happen? How do you think churches break apart? People quarrel. We have to avoid quarreling. Paul says to be gentle. The Christian should not be abrasive, should not be aggressive, but should be gentle. Meek, considerate of others. I've met some people in churches that are the most abrasive, harsh, aggressive people that I've probably ever met in my entire life. And, and I, they're in the church. And the sad thing is that so often their church will excuse their behavior. They'll excuse their behavior because it's just their personality, right? It's just, that's just who they are. We need to deal with it. We need to learn how to manage their personality. That's the biggest thing I'd always hear is just figure out how to manage their, their personality. That's wrong. The Bible commands us to be gentle as Christians. We're not abrasive. We're not mean. We're not harsh. We're gentle. So our personality we have a big, loud personality, like, that's fine, but we submit it to Christ. And even if we don't want to act in gentleness, we try to act in gentleness because we submit to Christ. Lastly, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Christians should be kind. Who would have thought? We should be the kindest people on earth because we've been shown the greatest kindness on earth. Right? And it says, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Right? So we should be nice to all people. Other Christians. Non-Christians. People of different races. Nationalities. Ethnic groups. Sexual orientations. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if you agree with them. You're nice to them. We just need to be nice people regardless of your politics or your opinions, right? We show love to all people. We treat them with respect and with dignity because they're made in the image of God, even if it's not easy. Going back to the people of Crete, do you think they were easy to treat with courtesy? Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's not easy to be nice to someone like that. But yet Paul tells him to do so. We should be known by our kindness, by our love. Right? Friends, this is the way that we should live. But often we're not successful at it. Right? We're, we're often, we, we fail in many of these areas. I know I do. Right? But if we only think about the way that we should live, if this is the only thing we're thinking about, we're often left feeling hopeless. It feels unattainable, right? But we're only seeing part of the picture. 
a very important part of the picture, but just part of the picture. So we have to remember the other pieces of the story as well. So the second thing to be reminded of this morning is how we used to live. Verse 3, it says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. If we want to live our lives for Christ, if we want to live the fullness of the Christian life, then we need to remember how we used to live. We need to remember what it was like before we met Christ. We were sinners. We were broken, stained, separated from God. We deserved eternal judgment in hell. We have to remember that. We have to, to keep that in mind. Paul lists attributes of those that, of before, people before they came to Christ. First is we were foolish. Live not as those who were wise, but as fools. Right? We just made poor decisions. You know, many of us can remember that time before we, were come, we came to Christ and our decision making was very poor. I know that was the case for me. We lived without sense. Many of us knew the gospel before we came to faith. Many of us knew the church. Many of us knew how and saw how things were supposed to be, yet we willingly rejected it. That's foolish. For me, I grew up in the church, but I rejected it. I saw godly people that were living Christ-fulfilled lives. And I chose to do my own thing. It's foolish to know the answer and to, to reject it. We were disobedient, right? No one could tell us to do anything. We wouldn't obey God or man. No authority could cause us to submit. This is ingrained in us. Like, ever since we, we've been little children, this has been ingrained in us, right? You don't have to teach a two-year-old to disobey. Many of you with young children know this. If I have a two-year-old and I draw a line on the floor and I say, hey, two-year-old, don't cross that line. It's going to be about 30 seconds before they start tiptoeing up to the line. They're looking to see if you're watching. And then... They put the foot over. And then it's not long after that that they've crossed the line fully. You don't have to teach us to disobey. We were disobedient. Many people in this world embody that into adulthood, right? There's, they have this sort of rebel persona. Our culture loves that, right? It's a, like, it's a good thing to be a rebel, right? To be disobedient to authority. And it's to the point, some people, they just disobey authority just for the sake of doing so. There's no real purpose or meaning behind it, but it's just defiance, who I, who I am, right? It's glorified. But that, that was us. That was us before we came to Christ, disobedient. We were also led astray. We believe lies about who we are and who God is. Many of us, myself included, you can recall a time where you didn't believe that the Bible was true. 
you can recall a time where you didn't believe in the Bible's power or authority over your life. Right? I know that's, that's true for me. We were led astray. See, many people today are deceived by the notion that all religions lead to the same place. That all religions teach the same thing, right? They're led astray. We were once led astray as well. We know our, our faith teaches something very different. Teaches something very distinct. But we didn't always know that. We were led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Whatever made us feel good, we were enslaved to it. We were enslaved to sexual immorality, drug addiction, alcoholism. Whatever, makes you, whatever made you feel good became slaves to it. You were chained by that thing. Now, I don't know m- many of your stories, but I'm just going to go based off of statistics here. So, statistically, most of the men in this room have struggled with pornography at some point in their lives. Statistically. You know, and by God's grace, he renews us from that. But statistically, at some point, that probably would have been a struggle for you. And for many women as well. Being enslaved to passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. We lived in malice, which means that we wished harm onto others. Lived in envy means we resentfully longed for what others had. It's this self-centeredness. It's disregard for others. We were hated by others. Guys, in our sin, we're not likable. It's, that's, it's a pretty, this is a pretty simple path. We're not likable in our sin. Right? Just looking at this list of attributes, who would want to hang out with someone like that? That sounds like a horrible time. Right? But many people think it's cool to have haters. Right? You know, I remember many, there are these pop culture figures that would boast in, like, oh, I've, I've got these haters. Haters gonna hate. Right? Um, these people, they would think that they were hated because of their success or clout or whatever. People were just jealous. You know, they hate me because they hate me because they ain't me. You know, that, that sort of thing. But truthfully, those that boast in having haters are like some of the most unlikable people. <laughs> you know, many of you, have you, any of you heard of Jake Paul? Yeah, he's, he's this YouTuber, you know, pop culture figure now turned boxer, very, very bizarre. And he actually is having a lot of success as a boxer. It's str- so strange. Um, but he became famous through putting videos of himself and his friends on YouTube where they would perform various acts and stunts in which property was often damaged, people were harassed, police were called, and they would, he would just make light of, of all of this. This is a man who has no respect for others, no respect uh, for people's property, no respect for the law, right? That's why people hated him, (laughs) not because he had success, it's because he was generally unlikable, and he boasted in that fact. 
He was proud of that. It's so sad. It's not a good thing to be hated. And it's not something to boast about. You ever had someone hate you? You ever had someone that you know that they hated your guts? Maybe you wronged them. Maybe they blamed you for something in their lives. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? It's gut-wrenching when you think about that person to know, oh man, there's someone out there who hates me, who wishes me ill. This is who we are in our sin. It's who we were, hated by others. We also hated one another. We didn't have love in our hearts. We didn't care for others. But we had hatred. This is the picture of who we were in our sin. Why does Paul remind us of this? That can be painful to go through that list to think, oh, yeah, that's me. That was me, yep. That's, that's a painful thing, and sometimes it can cause us to, to feel shame. So why, is, why do we need to remember this? Why is Paul reminding us of our sin? Well, for one, it helps us to empathize with people that are not trusting in Christ. Right? It helps us not to judge them or to act harshly towards the lost because we remember, man, we're, we were really not that far off. Right? It gives us humility, so we remember our sin for that. But secondly, being reminded of our sin, it makes this next truth so much sweeter. The last thing that Paul reminds us of is how we stand now. Follow along in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul reminds us how we stand now. So how do we stand now? Saved. The goodness and loving kindness of God appeared and he saved us. Not by our own works. Not by anything we could have done, but by his mercy. This is the, com the complete picture. We don't live the way we should, but we're not who we are, who we used to be. We're saved. You see, God withheld his just wrath from us. Even though we were sinners, even though we hated God, we were enslaved to passions and pleasures, deserving of his judgment, God loved us so much that he showed us mercy. He withheld the severe punishment that we deserved, and he put it on his own son. He put it on Jesus Christ when he went 
to the cross. This is a beautiful gift from God. We were sinners. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't do anything. Not by works of righteousness. We were hopeless. But God appeared. Thank you, God, that you appeared. What did he do? He showed us mercy. He is the one who saves. He took the initiative to step out and to appear in goodness and in loving kindness. And he saved us. He showed mercy. He also saved us by the washing of regeneration. Not only are we shown mercy, not only did the Lord withhold punishment from us, but he washed us clean. Remember all the sin that we talked about earlier? Remember that list of attributes that described you? It's all gone. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in him and are following him, that sin is gone. All past, present, and future sin is washed away by the washing of regeneration. You've been made new. So you don't have to walk carrying the stains of your sin. You don't have to walk around carrying shame. You've been washed. You're clean. You don't have this dirt anymore. We've also been regenerated. It's the washing of what? Regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you've been made new. You see, the new year doesn't change you as a person. Christ does. If you're trusting in Christ, you've been made new. You're not the same person that you once were. He's changed your heart. He's given you a, he's replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He's also saved us by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, when we trust in Christ as our Savior, we're given the Holy Spirit to renew us and to help us to follow him. Now the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God who calls us to salvation, who changes us, who renews us, leads us, comforts us, and helps us to serve the Lord. This is the presence of God that lives within us. And if you've trusted in Christ, even though you were a sinner, even though you were so far from God, as far as you possibly could have been, God is now with you. How is it with you? Through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit's been poured out on you richly. So, you were separate from God. You opposed him in every way. Now you have direct access to him and relationship with him in abundance. This is good news. The beauty of the gospel is that we get him. John Piper says... The greatest thing that God can give us is more of himself. And guess what? The Holy Spirit has been poured out on you 
richly through Jesus Christ. You have all that you need. Why? Because the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared. But that's not all. We're saved and we're given the Holy Spirit for a reason. Right? In verse 6, it's, or verse 5, it says, The renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a reason here. It's not all. There's two parts to that. The first is we were justified by his grace. This is a legal term. Justification. You'll hear that a lot in church, church life. To be justified means that you now stand rightly before God. You stand absolved of any crimes. Absolved of any sin. You are justified. How are you justified? It's by his grace. So you didn't deserve justification. You didn't deserve to stand rightly before God. But by his grace, that Ephesians 1 says that he lavishes upon us, you stand justified. The second part is you're justified by grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So not only did God show us mercy, wash us clean, renew our hearts, give us the Holy Spirit, justify us, lavish grace upon us, he gives us an inheritance. That's a place to say amen. We are heirs. We were against God. We were his enemies. Now we're his sons. We're his children. Everything that he has is ours. We get the inheritance of eternal life. Life that we chose to throw away with our sin. Life that we chose to oppose God with. We are now given new life. Eternally. The greatest thing God can give us is more of himself. He gives us himself richly and eternally. Forever. We get God. There's no end to our enjoyment of God. Oh, praise God. This is what God's done for us. His goodness and loving kindness appeared. and He saved us. His son, Jesus Christ, died on a cross as the atonement and sacrifice for our sins. And he raised him from the dead so that we can have him eternally and so that he would get all the glory. We were lost. Now we've been found. We were the offenders. And now we're sons and daughters. You see, this is what separates the Christian faith from everything else that anyone could ever believe. You see, all other belief systems can be described in one word. Do. It's described in, what can I do to, to reach God? To reach an afterlife? To find nirvana? What, whatever religion that, whatever religion argue for. 
Well, our faith can also be described in one word. Done. It's done. You see, every, every faith can be described as there's this mountain and God's at the top or this hope is at the top. And so my life is now I'm going to climb this mountain to get to whatever's at the top. But ours is the only one that our God came down from the mountain to be with us. He appeared in goodness and loving kindness. Everyone else says do, we say done. So, remember how we should live. Remember how we once lived. Remember how we stand now. But what can we take from this? How can, what does this mean for our lives daily? Well, Paul offers an answer. He says to insist on the gospel. In verse 8, it says, after Paul just described this beautiful truth of the gospel, of how we stand before God justified now, in verse 8, he says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. We have to insist on the gospel. We have to insist. Why? Because it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. So guys, you want to apply all of this to our lives. We have to center our lives around the gospel. We have to insist on the gospel when we wake up, when we go to sleep. In all things, we have to be fully about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's two ways that, we can, that this passage offers that we can do that. One is as an individual. We need to insist on the gospel as individuals in our individual lives. Verse 8, it says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Belief causes behavior. We talked about that earlier. If you want to live your life for Christ, it starts with the gospel. That's where it starts. That's how we can be careful to devote ourselves to good works. So I ask you this morning, is the gospel everything to you? Is it everything in your life? Is it what you think about? Is it what you talk about? Because we talk about what we treasure. Do you thank God for the gospel? Do you thank God for how he saved you? Or, how you, or have you gotten over the gospel? Have you gotten over what God has done for you? You see, so often... We'll look at this standard of Christian life that we saw in verses 1, 1 and 2. And we see that we fall short. Why, why do we fall short? Because we've forgotten to insist on the gospel. How often do we just forget it? We don't make it central to our lives. We get over it. We get over the fact that we're sinners and we're saved by grace. Right? It's easy to come to church to go to small group, to hear the gospel preached week in and week out, to hear this good news, and it just becomes numb. 
It just bounces off of us. And it doesn't do anything. Because we're not insisting on it. We're not founding everything in our lives on the gospel. So I want to invite us this morning as individuals to center our lives around the gospel. If you're feeling burnt out, the gospel. If you feel shame, the gospel. Go to the gospel. If you feel like you're not good enough, go to the gospel. Because Christ was good enough. If you feel depressed, go to the gospel. Let it give you hope. In all things, go to the gospel. The gospel, the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And it has to be everything in our lives. It's the answer for every issue we have. The gospel. You are lost. By God's grace, you're found. It's our answer, it's our hope in all things, and it's our motivation for good works. If you want to live lives that glorify God, live a life worthy of the gospel. Guys, we're people of the gospel. We have to make it all. How do you do that practically? You might say, yeah, that's great, but uh, it's hard. To remember all the time. It's, it's hard when you're in your day-to-day routine. When you go to work, you do chores, you know, you do the normal things in life. Sometimes it's hard to remember the gospel. Well, I think there's, this comes out in our habits. We can develop practical habits to center our lives around the gospel. There's a habit that that I I like to implement that's just preaching the gospel to yourself. We have to preach it to ourselves, right? What do you do in your life that reminds you of the gospel? What reminders are there where you live, work, and play that help you to remember the good news of Jesus? Maybe you set a reminder on your phone that tells you Pray to God and give him thanks because he saved you. Right? Maybe you, you memorize scriptures that just let the gospel seep into your heart. Maybe you place notes for yourself, perhaps on your steering wheel or, or in other places that you'll see it. You know, that maybe with the scripture or an exhortation or a psalm or whatever, that reminds you of the gospel. You've got to preach the gospel to yourself. People can only preach it to you so much. You've got to preach it to yourself. You've got to accept God's grace over your life and insist on these things. Because they are trustworthy. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ, I want to invite you to do that this morning. You see... Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life for you. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But Jesus wasn't. And that perfect life that he lived 
He laid it down on the cross so that if we would repent of our sin and put our faith in him, then we could be saved. So if you would do that this morning, if you'd humble yourself before God, repent of your sin, and trust him as your savior, he will grant you mercy. He will grant you grace. He will give you a new life, a new heart, and you will have an inheritance of eternal life with him. If you want to make that decision, don't leave this morning without talking to someone. You can talk to myself or our elder Charles or, uh, or, or David or, or any, any brother or sister in the church. Please, please don't leave this morning without talking to someone if you want to make that decision. So we have to insist on the gospel as individuals. But we also need to do that as a church. Right? We need to be about the gospel as a church. Verses 9 through 11, it says, But a fool, excuse me, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, when I first read these, verse, these verses, as I was studying this passage, it sort of caught me off guard. There's this beautiful, there's these beautiful verses about the gospel and, and remembering it in our lives. How did we get to church discipline? <laughs> How did we get to dealing with all of, all of this, these things? But, Paul wrote this for the Cretan churches because they were doing things that were distracting them from the gospel. All of these things were things that were taking them away from the truth of the gospel, from being gospel people. So guys, as a church, we need to be about the gospel. The gospel's why we're here. Not foolish debates, not genealogies, not quarrels, not disputes. We're here because of the gospel. We celebrate Jesus Christ's death and resurrection Every Lord's Day. Not to have foolish debates. Not to have quarrels. Paul says they're unprofitable and worthless. So guys, we need to go back to the gospel. We can't be distracted from it. We can't let all of these... All of this nonsense get in the way of seeing Christ. We have to reject these things. God doesn't want you arguing with your brother about minute theological debates or disagreements. I know in talking with most of you, you guys are students of theology. And that's amazing. Studying theology, learning the things of God is so good. But it's not the gospel. We can't be distracted from it. He doesn't want you arguing about theology or disputing non-essential things. He wants you at the foot of the cross. You see, the Pharisees argued about theology. They had massive disagreements. We can't be the Pharisees. We need to be about the gospel. I'm talking about non-essential things that often 
distract us, that often lead us to not focus on the things that we should focus on, like remembering the gospel and living our lives for him. Let's focus on the things that, that matter. Let's reject nonsense as a church and just be about the gospel. Guys, it's also important to remember this is why we have church discipline. This is why this is why we have church discipline so we can stay on track. So we can keep our church focused on the gospel. Church discipline helps us to be about the gospel. Right? That's why Paul says, for a person who stirs up division, for a person who is taking you away from these essential truths, and they're distracting you, they're uh, causing debates and quarrels, they're not repenting, they've been warned once, they've been warned twice, multiple times, they've been shown grace, and they just won't stop, they've got to be removed. Because we're about the gospel. We have to be about the gospel. And it's further restoration that they too can be a person of the gospel. Guys, the cross should be so big in our churches, should be so big in this church, that there is just no room for nonsense. And if that is going to happen, it first has to be so big in our hearts there's no room for these other things. God is good. Amen? He saved us for his glory. This is good news. So as individuals and as a church, we need to center our lives around the truth of the gospel. Let us be gospel-centered people. So I want to challenge you this morning, church, to do that as individuals, and together as the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope that you've given us in the gospel. You are so good. This is good news that we can never repay you for. And I thank you that you don't ask us to repay you. It's not anything that we've done, but it's only by your grace, by your mercy. So we thank you, Lord. We just praise you. We give you glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.